Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Do you ever have a concept that someone explains to you and it just doesn't click? Ever since the Ethereum chain switched to proof of stake, I've been hearing about something called liquid staking. And I have to admit, I just didn't get it. But the great thing about this podcast is that when I've got questions, I can find an expert and we all get to learn together. In this episode, I'm joined by Mara Schmeit, the new chief growth officer at Alluvial Finance. We go deep on the mechanics of liquid staking and something called the Liquid Collective that Mara describes as the secure liquid staking standard, a protocol designed to meet the needs of institutions. And if you're listening to this episode during the week of November 14th, congratulations, you've just lived through one of the most chaotic the crypto industry has ever seen. We'll be publishing regular market updates and analysis on the Chainalysis blog, which is linked in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to Public Key. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Today, we've got a topic that I've been intrigued by and I'm still not sure I fully understand, which is liquid staking. I'm joined by the new Chief Growth Officer at Alluvial, Mara Schmidt. Mara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ian. Looking forward to being here. This has been something that, you know, ever since the buzz around Ethereum shifting from proof of work to proof of stake, I've been intrigued by this idea of liquid staking. And I saw your post recently about leaving Coinbase Cloud to join this new startup, Alluvial. I just had to take the uh, moment to invite you on the podcast. You were kind enough to say yes when a random stranger approached you on Twitter. So thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ian. Before we jump deep into the the technical end of the pool, you've been in crypto for a long time. You're reading your bio. This is, I think, your third or fourth company in the crypto space. I'm always fascinated by how people found their way into the world of crypto. I feel like every story has interesting twists and turns. Maybe we can start there and you can you can tell us your crypto origin story. So I was fortunate enough to hear about Bitcoin fairly early-ish on, 2014, 2015. My cousin actually got into the space pretty early. We're a very nerdy family. Uh, we spend a lot of time during you know, family dinners, speaking about it. And I was really curious at the time. There was not really a lot of infrastructure in place to really, you know, dive in deep. And at the time I was studying in London, we had a lot of different societies, but there was no blockchain society, that's for sure. And, you know, it was something that I, you know, continued to be curious about, but eventually kind of took my path of, you know, entering the work world. And in 2017, I started working at a social impact fund that was focused particularly around supporting entrepreneurs and investments in, you know, developing markets. And my focus specifically was actually on Latin America and supporting different entrepreneurs that were focusing on the fintech space. In in the process of doing so, I actually came across a couple of entrepreneurs across Argentina and other parts of Latin America that were starting to build on this new thing, which was Ethereum at the time. And I spent a couple of weeks, you know, speaking with them, understanding more about why they started building on this new technology what promise they saw in it, and also, you know, got particularly interested in the fact that a lot of the emerging 
solutions that were starting to be developed around this technology were actually coming out of areas that were tackling real problems associated to their native currencies, the structuring of the economic environment and other things that they were trying to tackle through this. So I got naturally pulled into the rabbit hole of what eventually would become, you know, my commitment to working in this space full time. At the time, I also came across some of the early work that Consensus was doing. I had a chance to meet quite a few people across the organization. And towards the end of 2017, we actually, within Consensus, started pursuing an international expansion strategy. Originally, you know, the company was predominantly focused in in the U.S. and Brooklyn, and actually ended up joining Consensus with the build-out of our first international office, which was in London. Started off there, at the time we were very much focused on building out, you know, venture opportunities inside of the market and really bootstrapping the ecosystem to really figure out, one, what might stick, and two, what would be important to put in place in order for the ecosystem to actually proliferate. Spent time there, I was at Consensus for two and a half, almost three years, um, and went through a lot of different shifts, but also really exciting kind of growth phase in the market, where we moved from early ideation and discovery around what this technology could do across a very vast range of areas to really doubling down as a software company on things that we saw as valuable and that generate attraction. So if you think about Consensus today, really focused on the software components that, you know, make up MetaMask and Infura and other pieces that were built during this time. While at Consensus, I actually had the opportunity to meet Joe and Aaron from uh, Bison Trails, along with Victor, who I'd actually worked with at Consensus before, and Evan Weiss as well, was really fascinated by like their approach to infrastructure at the time. I'd already started very much focusing on the bottom parts of the technology stack. So really figuring out what picks and shovels need to be in place for this ecosystem to actually grow and mature. I joined the Bison Trails team and our business development team to really help us kind of grow and accelerate our staking offering in the market. And uh, we ended up getting acquired by Coinbase (laughs) not too many months later. So very, very exciting journey since then. Obviously, Bison Trails, you know, has become the new Coinbase cloud business that now stretches across multiple different product verticals, including payments, uh, storage, and and our infrastructure business. I left Coinbase as the head of sales recently, actually. It's been about two weeks to join Alluvial full time and would love to speak a little bit more about, you know, the journey of Alluvial and how that came to be. That's such an awesome story. And I talked to so many people who countered crypto for the first time in a university setting, like our co-founder here at, at Chainalysis, Jonathan Levin, same story. He was studying in the UK and discovered Bitcoin in a pub, tried to bring it up, I think, in some of his economics dissertation work and almost got laughed out of the program. I think you're probably the third or fourth person that had that that kind of inception story. It's such an exciting trajectory. Maybe we can shift gears a little bit and talk about this concept of liquid staking generally before we jump into alluvial let me play for you sort of my very basic understanding here so staking to me is a lot like something from traditional finance world like a certificate of deposit right a cd type product where i have an asset i give it to somebody else for a committed period of time in return they pay me a yield or an interest return on that deposit and at the end of the period i get the asset back or i can redeposit it again that's sort of my basic feeling about staking kind of generally and then i get hazier as i go into this concept of staking to maintain security on the network kind of what Ethereum's gone to. And the idea of liquidity then associated with that staking, my head explodes. Tell me where I'm I'm missing uh, important details here. 
I think the analogy is is right. So staking is really a core mechanism that is intended to contribute to protocol level security and integrity, right? And in many ways, the process of doing that is actually collateralizing existing tokens that you might have in exchange for the right to participate in network validation and participation, and you get incentivized through rewards uh, for doing so and providing that service. Because protocols are in many ways optimized or trying to optimize for one of the core functions that they provide, which is ensuring that they are maintaining the integrity and the security of a distributed ledger, a lot of the native protocol functions that relate to this collateralization process are really catered towards achieving that goal. So for example, when you look at protocol staking and participation today, there's a number of concepts that actually relate to the flow of assets in that. So sometimes you'll see warm-up periods or activation queues that you need to enter uh, before you can actually participate in the network and start earning rewards. And those can stretch out anywhere between a couple of days to, uh, on Ethereum, a couple of weeks, actually. And there's another concept which happens at the exit phase, which is what we would call unbonding periods. And again, we see networks implementing different variations of this, but usually this ranges anywhere from two days to, with Ethereum now, almost 18 months, right? Where the focus of that is really ensuring you bootstrap security during the net's uh, the network's launch and bootstrapping phase, making sure that you're mediating exits as to not to destabilize the system. To kind of summarize, right, like this is the core function of the protocol, but protocols are not necessarily natively designed to be capital efficient or to generate a liquidity that benefits the proliferation of more mature financial and capital markets on top of them. And that's actually where liquid staking plays a really, really critical and important role in bringing these two core components together for the ecosystem to mature and for our solutions on top of that to drive additional utility for for participants in the market. You said it much more eloquently than I did, for sure. One of the things I've wondered about liquid staking, so I deposit my tokens into a protocol, I get then a receipt. And I think actually some of the that explainers on Alluvial site, which we'll link to, describe it almost as a coat check receipt, where now I've got this thing in my wallet that allows me to redeem tokens I've staked and also get my share of any rewards or interest earned for those staked tokens at some point in the future. The idea that I can take that receipt and it in itself, it actually is a valued asset. I can go invest further is where my my understanding started to break down. And, and as I think about it, it's the analog I was drawing and maybe why I'm not understanding it well is like, if I deposit money into a checking account, I have a receipt of that deposit that says, hey, I have funds at the bank. But that receipt in itself, I can't walk down the street to another bank and deposit the same funds again. It feels like I'm almost using the same assets twice in this scenario. And maybe this plays into the capital efficiency that you just talked about. But help me get past this block in my my understanding. Yeah, definitely. So... I think you said it the right way. So what is really the, the core purpose of liquid staking tokens? So when you participate in liquid staking, liquid staking protocols facilitate the deposit of base assets into the protocol. They get staked in the protocol. They stay there. <laughs> but what you're, what you're actually getting in return is a title of ownership or a receipt, as you will, of the fact that those assets are in existence. Right. In many ways, through the process of locking up assets and on one side of the stack and issuing a proof, an on-chain proof of the existence of those assets and the ownership that it relates to 
obviously intends to mitigate some of this double spend concern in a world where, you know, you wouldn't want those two assets coexisting at any given point in time. But if you think about the traditional, you know, world, the concept of that is actually not new. So when you look at, you know, mentioned code check, but let's talk about something like trade finance, right? Warehouse receipts are actually a very, you know, standardized component of trade financing flows as it relates to, say, the trade of, you know, agricultural goods and commerce, right? And in many ways, they provide assurances and interaction during the trade financing process to support guarantees on you know, both insurance and financing components that relate to that. When you think about what value you unlock with this type of mechanism and actually having this proof of ownership as opposed to not having it, which is the case in traditional staking, is that you can now prove in, in an on-chain and verified manner uh, the fact that you not just own, but those assets are in existence. Let me take the example of like a real world analogy here. If you've gone out and you just bought a new house and you're very excited and put your capital into that, in a, in, in, in a mature financial market, you should be able to go to a bank and say, I have this house and I would love to borrow because there is proof that I have assets to cover that loan, right? And a similar concept actually happens when we start issuing the proof or the fact that there is assets in existence and evaluation that relates to that. So people can take that proof and then interact with, say, decentralized finance, where they can choose to borrow or lend against those assets as they wish, right? We've in many ways already created a lot of these systems in kind of the traditional market, but we haven't really created those systems yet on Web3. And I think liquid staking is a really important step to get to a world where you know, we actually have clear title of ownership and receipts on the assets that are owned and who they're owned by. That is terrific explanation. And so I could think about liquid staking as being more akin to a home equity line of credit where I have equity in a house. I don't want to sell the house, but I need I have capital requirements. I want some cash to renovate my house. And so I go to the bank and say, hey, it's clearly worth this much. We can get a third party appraisal that says it's worth this much. It's unencumbered by some other mortgage loan. This is above and beyond existing loans on the property. Bank gives me that cash as a you know secondary thing and I can go do with it what I want. That starts to make a ton of sense. And I think the other example you gave is maybe against, um, often you'll see like inventory loans for businesses where they need capital financing. So they've got orders from customers, but they need to go manufacture the thing they've sold. And so there's a cash flow problem. Those two examples much better than my coat check one. In both of those cases, like there's a fractional value. So I don't get 100% of the house value. I can't take that out as a home equity line of credit often. And similarly, like I wouldn't be able to borrow probably 100% of the value of the purchase orders in the business case. Is it similar in the case of liquid staking? Like, is there some sort of proportional value or do I suddenly have access to all the capital that's staked plus potential future rewards value? So your receipt tokens are directly correlated to the amount of assets that have been deposited and staked on the network. Again, it is a receipt, right, of those assets existing and what they're valued at. When you go and think about kind of where does that go from there, there's different kind of levers that you pull as you kind of start thinking about what financial utility this can unlock. So the first component, obviously, some people want liquidity. And if they want to trade out of these positions while they're staked in the network without having to pull networks off chain, pull them out of stake and reduce security budgets to get exit liquidity, they can actually trade this title of ownership and say, I'm trading my ownership and I'm passing it on to the next person. So in that case, you know, you would want to make sure that those receipt tokens are actually reflective of the value 
that they're referring to. But when you look at kind of the example of the housing loan, right? When you're taking your receipt tokens and you're saying, you know, I would actually like to borrow against this. And you look at the traditional environments inside of, you know, DeFi as it exists today, you'll still have to evaluate, right, what the loan to value ratio and the collateralization ratio needs to look like that is a native parameter of how some of these systems work, right, and, and how they work in the traditional work world as well. So that, that's definitely kind of a consideration in terms of how these flows interact and, and work together. So now liquid staking, not a brand new concept, but Alluvial, I think, has a very different take on the approach to market. You're not a retail focused company. I think you described it earlier as really being the first enterprise focused organization in the space. Maybe tell us a little bit more about what that means and the approach that you all are taking to this innovation. In reality, liquid staking is a very nascent space, but probably one of the fastest growing, you know, sub-segments in Web3 that we're currently seeing. So definitely an extremely exciting opportunity with no very clear foundations of demand in the market that we base this on. If you look at Ethereum, right, and we actually <laughs> ended up speaking about it this morning together, but if you look at where Ethereum is at, right, even though today of the entirety of the network, we only have around 12% of ETH staked and committed, over 40% of that today actually flows through liquid staking protocols. So we're very quickly moving into a world where we'll probably see an increasing ratio of staked assets actually flowing through liquid staking protocols as a result of the additional benefits flexibility and utility that they provide. And that's a very clear kind of growth pattern that we've been able to, to observe over the last 18 months, truthfully, since the first solution came to market. Now, when you look at the solutions that have been in the market until today, I think one thing that's really important to note is there's great, great protocols that have done amazing work in kind of building the foundations around this. If you look at know, Lido or Rocket Pool and Stakewise, and they've definitely done a tremendous job in garnering participation. One thing that I would note is that a lot of that participation in, in the early days and really the focus of the design of some of these protocols is for crypto native retail adoption, right? <laughs> and specifically focused on consumer facing products and interfaces that people can interact with and assuming that, you know, they have an understanding of how some of these components work. But there's an entire segment of market participants for whom the solution not necessarily meets all of the requirements that are in existence. And what I'm speaking about specifically are, you know, large scale enterprises, financial institutions and financial service providers who have a range of requirements in order to be able to integrate and offer this type of product to their clients, whether that ends up being a retail customer or an institutional client. We actually went into this evaluation fairly early on at Coinbase, but simultaneously a lot of other market participants um, started evaluating the options in the market here. So as we looked at you know, the existing solutions, there were three core components that were really important for us to evaluate. So the first one was, do we know who our counterparts are in this type of configuration? Can we get comfortable not knowing who some of the validators are who we would be staking client assets to. The second piece is, can we get comfortable with a solution that does not have any requirements to KYC or AML check the point of deposit or withdrawal directly from the protocol? And the third piece was, are the solutions in the market viable to help us build a robust commercial and business strategy on top of and to monetize that over time? So as we went through this you know, evaluation, we realized that across these kind of three vectors, we, we hadn't really identified the right solution. 
And at the same time, we started speaking to a lot of our, you know, largest partners and competitors in the space to hear what they were thinking about this too. And that's actually like the origin story <laughs> in many ways of like how we came to be, which was there's a clear need in the market. We think that there is going to be a new wave of adoption, participation, and proof of stake protocols that is going to be driven by enterprises and more traditional financial institutions that we have to build the right products and solutions for um, in order to bring them into the space. And that is really important for the growth of the space in entirety, but also who actually participates and how we grow this over time. As we evaluated that, it became clear that we needed to find a solution that would be enterprise grade, that would work with leading validators in the space, that would be known to our integrators and counterparts to build a robust solution around, and something that offered a level of you know, a compliance layer at the KYC and AML check lab for parties that were integrating into the protocol. And that is actually what ended up forming Alluvial with some of the core initial, you know, members that you would see through some of the announcements that have come up. But, you know, Coinbase, Kraken, Figment, Staked, Coinbase Cloud Team, we all really came together to execute on this vision and mission to build an enterprise-grade liquid staking standard for the space. That's amazing. I mean, the three requirements you laid out, you know, known counterparties and validators, KYC, AML, and like a platform on which to build. I think those are the gaps that all of TradFi is looking at as they look at the crypto world and they're like, hey, we, we want to participate. This is clearly the future, but like without these things, it's very hard to get past our internal risk and governance committees. So it feels like the thing that is is necessary to accelerate us to the next wave of crypto adoption. It's awesome. Now, one of the things that, that was announced is Liquid Collective, which from my roots in the world of open source software, looks a lot like you know an open source foundation where you've got people from all different parts of the ecosystem coming together to try and build a common protocol. Can you talk a little bit about how Alluvial relates to Liquid Collective and what we should expect to see come out of that over time? So I think really important to note, just as we spoke about this a second ago, was to build out a foundation for you know, an enterprise-grade solution for staking in the market. But there was another consideration that we had to make, which was, are we solving for this problem if everyone builds this in a siloed and fragmented way? Are we going to win as a market if there's 30 different types of staked ETH, but no robust kind of evaluation and risk layers to even assess, you know, what, what the difference in priced in risk should be when looking at these different assets. So for us, it became very clear that we would have to build this out as a standard. And in order to build it out as a standard, we would have to build it together with industry leading partners across all verticals, validators, integrators, technology partners, service providers. And as you alluded to, right, that's exactly what Liquid Collective is. It's a jointly owned, governed and incentivized protocol layer that seeks to build out a standard for liquid staking and validator management across the ecosystem. Alluvial is the operating entity or the software development company that is contributing to the development of Liquid Collective protocol. So you can think of this a little bit like the edge of node to, to the graph, right? We, we're supporting the software development component of the solution. But Liquid Collective is really the protocol, you know, foundation governed protocol that we're trying to bring to market that is also going to be, you know, jointly developed, defined and grown by the core components and stewards that are part of the collective. Really neat. One question. So it sounds like Coinbase was part of the genesis of Alluvial and they're also recently in the news because they launched Liquid Staking on their own platform, introduced a new token called CB. 
ETH, which I assume is Coinbase ETH. Any sense of how that plays out with the shared protocol over time? Because they're one of the kind of fractures of, of all the different flavors of liquid staked ETH that's out there today, right? Yeah, so I can't speak to kind of Coinbase's, you know, strategy as it relates to this, but I can speak to kind of what I would be expecting or observing in the market. So there's clearly a need for an evolution, also diversification of the liquid staking protocols that are available in the market. And I think there is room for different solutions that cater to different market segments. I think CBEs is one flavor of that, but so is Lido and so is Liquid Collective. Really targeted to contribute to broader level adoption in the market and doing that in a way where it's not a winner take all type of environment, but rather solutions are being designed uh, to focus and to serve to specific, you know, customer segments that we're trying to bring into the fold for participation in Web3. So that's really how I'm, you know, viewing that perspective. And I'm expecting that we'll have loads more different liquid staking protocols that are going to be evolving the same way that we saw, you know, between 2018, 2019, so many different types of staking providers proliferate in the market, right? And I think that's a very healthy development. And as a you know collective industry, it also helps us get a lot more firm around the key components that we need to develop and, and implement, innovate on in order to really build solutions that are more robust, better and well targeted at the people we're trying to bring into the space. As you think about the organizations you're kind of bringing to Liquid Collective that are participating in this, you know, the headliners were certainly the well-known exchanges like Kraken and Coinbase. And I think a lot of people probably familiar with Figment if they've been following Liquid Staking, but also some other interesting early startups like Kiln was one that I noticed because there's a, quite a few former Chainalysis folks that have gone over to the Kiln team. How are you thinking about that ecosystem? If there's companies listening to the podcast, like what are the requirements to participate in Liquid Collective? If they want to get involved, do they just track you down on Twitter like I did or what, what should they be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, to build the standard, we need to build it together. So we want to take that approach in the way that we're developing to kind of the first point of the question. So as I mentioned, we have a wide variety of stakeholder groups that comprise Liquid Collective and, you know, the participants that are a part of it. So obviously on the integrator side, we refer to integrators as anyone who's integrating the protocol API into their solution. So, you know, Coinbase and Kraken are two of the partners that have been announced on that. We have the validator side, right? So today we're planning to go live with an initial validator set of three, really focused on some of the leading enterprise grade and security conscious providers in the space. So Figment, Coinbase Cloud and Staked are all three going to be part of the initial validator set during the active launch. We're actually working with a third-party data partner at the moment to build out an on-chain and off-chain standardization for measuring validator performance and risk that is eventually going to feed into how the long-term of our validator active set is going to look and who's going to be able to participate against a defined and robust set of standards that is not federated in a centralized manner. And then lastly, because we spoke about Kiln, let's talk about that for a second. We are actually looking to partner with a lot of ecosystem partners as it relates to, you know, our rollout for Ethereum, where Kiln was, you know, an important technology partner to help us, you know, build out the implementation for the Ethereum protocol extension. But then also with other partners across the ecosystem that we're working with to extend the protocol across other chains. Because the goal here is really building a turnkey solution that is multi-chain and really serves as a universal API for staking across networks. So you may have heard that we announced our relationships with both Akala for the expansion of our protocol on Polkadot and then Banky for expansion of the protocol on Avalanche. So that's really the approach that we're taking. We want to work with those who have the right expertise and the right you know, technical abilities inside of the ecosystems that we're supporting 
and taking the approach of building together to build better. <laughs> we're, we're definitely open to hearing from anyone, whether it's on the partnership side or on the validator side, whether you're interested to in building with us. So please reach out to general at alluvial.finance to chat with us. More effective than sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely put that into the, uh, into the show notes. So if you didn't catch it live there, don't worry. We'll get you the link. Well, Mar, this has been an awesome discussion. I've really enjoyed getting to, to meet you live and, and learn quite a bit more about liquid staking. I feel like my knowledge has gone from one or two on a scale of 100. I'm definitely at least over 10 now. I can be conversationally dangerous, maybe. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Ian. This is great. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. The last week's been a tough one for our friends and colleagues across crypto. The monetary losses are significant, and so is the loss of trust. I'll leave the hot takes to Twitter pundits and instead try to offer some words of encouragement. I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible people through this platform, people who are optimistic about crypto and are working to make the technology a force for good. These builders are working hard to lead us through a transformation of the financial system, and I believe that's worth sticking around for. So I'll be here next week and the week after, and the week after that too, and I sure hope you'll join me.